0: Good morning. I see some people sitting in the back. There's always space next to me, if you're looking for it. So I just want that to be known. There's always open seats by me. I do get lonely. So um, so as Mark said last week, we started this series on Ezekiel. We saw this amazing vision of the glory of God. And we're starting uh, these first two weeks by just talking about who our God is, this wild awesome, awful, as I mentioned last week, God. And we're going to continue that theme today, and then we'll jump into the narrative of chapter two next week. Uh, I want to show you a video right now. It's a fairly lengthy video that gives you an overview of Ezekiel, which I think will be very helpful. Um, What you're about to see, these are guys I came across a couple years ago. This is the best stuff uh, that I have seen that gives good overviews of Bible books, okay? I'll tell you where to find it afterwards because some of you will email me. I'll save you the email and I'll just tell you, okay? But this is, I think it's about a five to seven minute video that overviews the book of Ezekiel. So, and then I'll come back up. Unfortunately, this will be the highlight of the morning, um, (laughs) but it
1: is what it is. The book of the prophet Ezekiel Ezekiel was a priest who had been living in Jerusalem during the first Babylonian attack on the city. And they spared the city but they took a first wave of Israelite prisoners and hauled them off into exile and Ezekiel was among them. So the book begins five years after all that and Ezekiel is sitting on the bank of an irrigation canal near his Israelite refugee camp. And it is his 30th birthday no less, the year that he would have been installed as a priest in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, Ezekiel has this vision. He sees a storm cloud approaching. And then inside the cloud are four strange creatures that have wings outstretched and touching each other. And these creatures each had four faces. And then he saw four wheels, one by each creature. And then he saw that the wings of the creatures were supporting this dazzling platform. And then on that platform is a throne. And then sitting on that throne is this human like creature glowing and shrouded in fire. And then then all of a sudden, Ezekiel realizes what he's seeing. He calls it the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's God riding his royal throne chariot. Now, the word glory, in Hebrew it's kavod, it means heavy or significant. The biblical authors use this word to describe the physical appearance and manifestation of God's significance when he shows up in person. These images in the vision, they're very similar to what happened when God appeared on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. And it's also very similar to the depictions of God's presence over the Ark of the Covenant. And that's actually the most shocking thing about Ezekiel's vision. What is God's glory doing in Babylon? It's supposed to be above the Ark of the Covenant in the temple in Jerusalem. And so the first section of the book opens to explore that question as Ezekiel begins to accuse Israel of rebellion. So God first speaks to Ezekiel from the throne chariot and he commissions him as a prophet. Ezekiel is to accuse Israel of breaking their covenant agreement with God in a couple ways. Israel has given their allegiance to other gods and has been worshipping idols, and this has all led to rampant social injustice and violence, and so as a result, God appoints Ezekiel to warn the people. The first Babylonian attack that took Ezekiel into exile is going to be matched by another, and Jerusalem, its temple, all face imminent destruction. So Ezekiel uses words and more to get his message across. He also performs sign acts. These were a form of street theater. Ezekiel would go out in public and start behaving in these really bizarre ways that were like parables of his prophetic message. So he was supposed to build a tiny model of Jerusalem and then stage an attack on it. Or He was to shave off all of his hair and then chop it up with a sword. Or the most extreme, he was to play the role of the scapegoat on the day of atonement and lay on his side for over a year eating food cooked over poop as a sign of the nasty food that people will have to eat during the siege of Jerusalem. And perhaps the most disheartening thing of all is the bad news God gave Ezekiel that no one was going to listen to him. Israel would reject him because of their rebellious and hard heart and this recalls Moses' description of the people after the wilderness rebellions when he predicted that exile would one day happen and Ezekiel had the unfortunate privilege of seeing it all come to pass. And so a dismayed Ezekiel, he begins to perform his task. And after about a year, he has another vision. This one is about the temple. He goes on this virtual tour of the temple and he sees what's happening there in his absence and it is not good. In the outer courtyard in front of the temple, he sees this large idol statue. And then he sees the elders of Israel worshiping other gods both outside and inside the temple. And then he sees the women of Israel. They're worshiping a Babylonian god named Tammuz. And the vision ends, with God's glorious throne chariot moving up and away from the temple. It's leaving, going east, headed towards Babylon. And so in chapter 11 we come to see why and how God's glory appeared to Ezekiel there in Babylon. Israel's idolatry and their covenant violations, it's become so blatant and offensive that God has left his temple. They've driven him away and he consigns it to destruction. But God hasn't abandoned his people, rather he goes into exile with them. And so at the end of this vision in chapter 11, God promises that he will return a remnant of Israel back to the land. And he'll transform them by removing their heart of stone and giving them a new soft heart of flesh so that they can love and truly follow their God after all. This is a small glimmer of hope and it's quickly submerged under the reality of the imminent destruction. But chapter 11, it's a key transition and it helps us understand how the rest of the book has been designed. So the next three sections are all announcements of God's judgment. First on Israel, then on the nations around Israel, and then on Jerusalem itself. But then after that, the hopeful conclusion of chapter 11 gets developed in the final three sections of the book. First, hope for Israel, then for the nations, and then for all creation. Chapters 12 through 24 focus on God's judgment coming to Israel. And this is a diverse collection of poems and essays. And here Ezekiel shows his fondness for parable and allegory. So he depicts Israel as a burnt useless stick or as a rebellious wife or as a dangerous raging lion that gets captured or as two promiscuous sisters. These are all depictions of Israel's senseless rebellion and idolatry that results in their ruin. In this section, Ezekiel also acts like a lawyer. He begins arguing the case that, first of all, Jerusalem's destruction is truly deserved after centuries of covenant violation. And that even if the most righteous people in the world, like Noah or Daniel or Job, were alive and praying for God to spare Israel, God would not accept their prayers. It's far too late. And so God's goodness actually demands that he bring justice on this generation of Israel. The exile has become inevitable They've reached the point of no return. Following this, Ezekiel focuses first on the nations immediately around Israel and then on the two most powerful states in the region, Egypt and then Tyre. Israel has allied with these nations and adopted their gods and their idols and so God accuses the kings of Tyre and Egypt for arrogantly viewing themselves as gods who get to define right and wrong on their own terms. And God holds these kings accountable for their pride and he announces that he will use Babylon to bring them down. They will face God's justice along with everybody else. Following these really intense sections is a short story in chapter 33. Ezekiel's met by a refugee who's just arrived from Jerusalem, and he gives them the report that Babylon has attacked the city of Jerusalem, that the city has fallen, and the temple is destroyed. Ezekiel's grim warnings have become a reality. But remember, the end of chapter 11, that's not the end of the story. And so in the next video, we'll explore Ezekiel's profound vision of hope. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Ezekiel.
0: (laughs) There's going to be a test at the end of the the morning. So, uh, pretty good, huh? Not bad. I uh, couldn't do better myself, which is <laughs> why I played that. Uh, that's, uh, there's a website called thebibleproject.com. They have those for uh, almost all of the biblical books now. They also have an, an app uh, called Read Scripture, uh, which is uh, y- you can read through Scripture in a year, and as you get to each of the new books, they give you each one of these videos. So really great uh, way of um, kind of encountering the, the narrative of Scripture. Thus ends the highlight of the morning. And now on to me. Um, So today, like I said, I want to, this is going to be another overview, and we're looking at this big picture of who our God is, but we're going to get at it in a very different way than we did last week, okay? And you're going to have to just bear with me. I know we've already gone a long ways. You've seen the video, but um, I need your your minds engaged today. Um, If you look at verse 1 and 2, look at verse 1 and 2. you'll see something interesting. Verse 1 says, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were open, and I saw visions of God. So Ezekiel says, I saw visions of God. And we looked at a vision of God last week. Verse 2 says, on the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Joachim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest. So Ezekiel is all about visions. You get these visual displays, but you also have the word of God, God speaking words to his people. And so today, I want to get at a similar theme as last week, but in a different way. Last week, we looked at the visual picture of of God's glory that he he brings to Ezekiel. Today, I want to look at the words of the Lord that come to Ezekiel. And specifically, I want to look at uh, two key phrases that show up, throughout Ezekiel, that I think really capture the fundamental message of heart, really get at what is driving this big and wild God to do the things he does, which as we saw, involve both judgment and salvation. Let me show you what the phrases are right up front. The first phrase is this, then you will know that I am the Lord, and the second phrase is for the sake of my name. I just want to talk through each of those phrases today, and we're going to be jumping around a little bit to see where they show up and try to get a sense of what is is going on, what is God driving at in this book? What's his motivation for doing the things he does, all right? So first, uh, let's look at this first phrase, then you will know uh, that I am the Lord. If you read through Ezekiel, you cannot... Miss this phrase. When I finished reading Ezekiel, this phrase was just echoing in my my mind over 70 times in this book. Then you will know that I am the Lord. That Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is of course the personal name of God. We often pronounce it as Yahweh or maybe Jehovah. It gets translated that way. But literally, he's saying, Then you will know that I am Yahweh. And I I want to ask the question. What does he mean by this phrase? Don't they already know (laughs) that he's Yahweh? So uh, turn with me to chapter 6. I'm going to show you two contexts where this phrase pops up a lot. Uh, Context of judgment and context of salvation, okay? So first, I wanna show you a context of judgment where this phrase shows up. Chapter six, the context, and we saw it in the video, is the idolatry of Israel, that they are worshiping all these other gods, and so God is now speaking to them and speaking about the judgment he's gonna bring because of the way they've been worshiping other gods, and watch the echo of this phrase, all right? Look at verse four. I'm going to kind of jump around. Your altars will be demolished. This is pretty heavy stuff. Just get ready. Uh, Your altars will be demolished and your incense altars will be smashed. And I will slay your people in front of your idols. I will lay the dead bodies of the Israelites in in front of their idols. And I will scatter your bones around your altars. Verse 7. Your people will fall slain among you and you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 9. Then in the nations where they have been carried captive, those who escape will remember me, how I have been grieved by their adulterous hearts, which have turned away from me, and by their eyes, which have lusted after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evil they have done and for all their detestable practices, and they will know that I am the Lord. I did not threaten in vain to bring this calamity on them." Verse 12, you're getting the idea. He that is far away will die of the plague, and he that is near will die by the sword, and he that survives and is spared will die of famine, so will I spend my wrath upon them. And they will know that I am the Lord when their people lie slain among their idols. Verse 14, I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land a desolate waste from the desert to Dibla, wherever they live. Then they will know (laughs) that I am the Lord." Okay, what is, what is he getting at? Um, doesn't Israel already know that he is the Lord? Well, yes and no, <laughs> right? Uh, intellectually, they know that there is this God called Yahweh who entered into a covenant and, and claimed to bring them out of Egypt. But in reality, their hearts had wandered from Yahweh, right? In, in real, their hearts had been seduced by other gods, by some of the values of the other Cultures and peoples around them, and the the glory of God that we're talking about, the wildness of, of God has grown very dim in their hearts. And they're living lives thinking, you know what, God doesn't see. God doesn't care what we do. We can live how we want. God's not going to call account. He, he's, God's like this, like a substitute teacher, you know, the kind that shows up and puts their feet on the desk and, and reads the paper while the kids do. God's not really, he, he's, he's not really paying attention. He does not call to account. And so God is saying, I am bringing judgment on you. I'm going to bring the consequences for your sins. And my motivation, my reason for doing that is so that you will know that I am the Lord Meaning, you will really come to understand that I am who I say I am, and that I see all, and that my words are not in vain, but that what I claim will happen will come to pass. You will know that I am the Lord. Meaning, the overwhelming reality of who I am as God will come to bear on you in a very profound way. And it will, to use the word I used last week, it will be an awful experience. And you will truly know that I am God, and there is no other God. That makes sense? So let me ask you, have you ever had that experience with God? Have you ever had a time in your life where, um, I mean, maybe this is, some of you probably came to faith this way, but maybe you were, there's a, a part of your life where you're just kind of living in sin. You're, you, were, you, you were doing something consistently that intellectually you knew you shouldn't be doing, but you kind of, your heart just got callous, and you just like, you know, I'm just going to do this. God doesn't, God, life just keeps going, and then at some point, God just stepped in. He, he created a set of circumstances um, that just confronted you with what you're doing in some undeniable way, and, and, and what you had kind of maybe known up here, all of a sudden, you realize, oh my goodness, God really is God. And God really is watching, and, and it brought you to this profound sense of, of awe, or hopefully repentance. And, and you were living a certain way, and all of a sudden you change, and you realize, whoa, you are God, and I need to repent of what I'm doing. You all of a sudden knew that God truly was, was God. Let me show you the other context where this happens. Uh, not just in context of judgment, but also in context of salvation. So uh, turn with me to now chapter twenty-eight. So we're going all all across this book today. Um, chapter twenty-eight, verse twenty-five. So obviously that was a, a context of, of judgment. This will be a context of grace and salvation. Uh, tw- verse uh, chapter twenty-eight, verse twenty-five. So God is going to send the people into exile, right? Some of them are already in exile. And then he's going to eventually bring them back out of exile into the land. Verse 25. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Very different feel from from chapter 6. When I gather the people of Israel from the nations where they have been scattered, I will show myself holy among them in the sight of the nations. Then they will live in their own land which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live there in safety and will build houses and plant vineyards. They will live in safety when I inflict punishment on all their neighbors who have maligned them. And then they will know that I am the Lord, their God. God is saying here, I'm going to do a series of things for you, Israel, that you could not possibly do for yourselves. I'm going to rescue you from slavery and exile. I'm going to to defeat enemies who are too powerful for you. I'm going to bring you back into the land. I'm going to create a time of prosperity and health and wholeness in the land. And you will look at all of that, and it will be this miraculous act of my grace and my power, and the result of that will be that you will know... That I am the Lord. And it will be an awful experience in the sense of filling you full of awe. You will look at it and say, oh my goodness, God, you are so gracious. You are so powerful. You did something that we could never have done for ourselves. And you did it in such a way that we can only step back and go, you truly are God. You truly are the Lord. You save and nobody else can save the way you save Yahweh. Make that make sense? Now, have you ever had that experience? I hope most of us have had those kinds of experiences in our lives where God does something that just the the unbearable weight of his grace and his mercy strikes us that we go, oh God, you alone are God and you alone can save. I was thinking this week for myself of several several circumstances in my life over the years. I'm not going to give you all the details. But these, these moments in my life where I was either going through some, some personal problem or some relational problem, and I had been working to try to fix whatever the problem was. And just beating my head against you know the wall, time saying, I, I need to fix this, I need to work on this, I need to figure this out. And at some point, the reality of the situation just hit me, and God brought me to this place where I was like of surrender. It's like, you know what, God, I I cannot fix this. I cannot solve this thing. I keep trying, but I'm, I'm done trying to fix this. I can't do this. And, and as soon as I did that, God just brought this kind of miraculous set of circumstances where he just, he just came in and he just did for me what I couldn't possibly do for myself. He, 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 just this surprising thing happened that, I'm, that he solved the thing that I'd been working so hard to solve. And I believe he did it so that I might know <laughs> that he is the Lord. So that he might say, I alone, Dave, can heal and save. And he wanted to bring me to that place of, of surrender and brokenness so that I was actually open to receiving, oh, you are yours. Because intellectually, I knew, I already knew he was God. <laughs> but in my experience, I didn't. And so he worked through a a moment of grace and salvation that I might know that he is the Lord. This is one of the driving motivations of God in the book of Ezekiel, whether it's in bringing judgment or whether it's in bringing salvation, that you might truly know my power and that I am who I say I am, that I am God and there is none other like me. All right? All right? So there's the first phrase, and I'll let you see it twice because it's so powerful. Here's the second phrase, for the sake of my name, okay? This one doesn't show up quite as often, uh, but shows up a lot. Now this one, for the sake of my name, this is God speaking, this one shows up almost exclusively in context of salvation, okay? Not so much judgment, but of salvation. So last place we're going to turn, turn to chapter 20. Uh, This is one of the key places where it shows up. Chapter 20. Very interesting uh, chapter. So in chapter 20, God is kind of, he's reminding Israel of his, the history of his relationship with them. Beginning back in Egypt when he you know, entered into a covenant with them and rescued them from Egypt. And there's this pattern that emerges in this chapter. And you'll see the pattern happen about three or four times. I'll walk you through it. But here's the pattern. God will, will start. He'll, 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 this will happen. God will make some covenant promises with his people, okay? Some great promises. Next thing will happen is um, Israel will rebel <laughs> against God. And then God will, his anger will be stirred, and he will threaten to judge them. But finally, for the sake of his name, the phrase will be, God will choose not to bring about the judgment that he threatened. All right? So let me just, just walk you through, you can follow along, you can just listen to me, just give you a sense of this, okay? First he starts with them in Egypt, when God first came to Israel in Egypt. This is verse 5, uh, which is... Uh, On the day I chose Israel, I swore with uplifted hand to the descendants of the house of Jacob and revealed myself to them in Egypt. With uplifted hand, I said to them, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of Egypt into a land I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most beautiful of all lands. There's the covenant promise. Verse 8. But... They rebelled against me and would not listen to me. They did not get rid of the vile images they had set their eyes on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. There's point two. Here comes point three. So I said I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in Egypt. Point four. But, here's the phrase, for the sake of my name, I did what would keep it from being profaned in the eyes of the nations they lived in, and in whose sight I had revealed myself to Egypt. Therefore, I led them out of Egypt and brought them into the desert. Okay? First instance of that. Second instance. Now they're in the wilderness. You're going to see the same pattern happen. Verse 11. I gave them my decrees and made known to them my laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. Verse 13, yet the people of Israel rebelled against me in the desert. They did not follow my decrees but rejected my laws. Uh, Moving on, verse 13. So, point three, I said I would pour out my wrath on them and destroy them in the desert. Verse 14, but for the sake of my name, I did what would keep it from being profane in the eyes of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. He did not destroy them. Final time, now he's to the second generation of Israelites in Israel. You're getting the point here. Verse 18 I said to their children in the desert, Do not follow the statutes of your fathers, or keep their laws, or defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Follow my decrees, and be careful to keep my laws. Verse 21. But the children rebelled against me. They did not follow my decrees. They were not careful to keep my laws, although the man who obeys them will live by them, and they desecrate my Sabbaths. Point three, so I said I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in, in the desert. Verse 22, but I withheld my hand, and for the sake of my name, I did what would keep it from being profane in the eyes of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. Okay, I think you get the point, right? So you have God dealing with these people who are constantly disobedient, constantly rebelling, and God is constantly forgiving the people, constantly being gracious. And let me ask you, what is his motivation in being gracious to his people? The motivation is not out of pity and compassion for his people, though he clearly has that. What's the motivation? For the sake of his name. What is his motivation? This is going to sound strange. God says, here's why, Israel, because I have a reputation to protect in the world. I got a rep to protect because I want my glory. I want my honor. I want my name to be treated as great among the nations. Okay? Sounds a little strange, but here's what God did. God made a covenant with Israel and Egypt, and it was very public, right? God sent Moses to Pharaoh. Pharaoh knew about it. All Egypt knew about it. That this God said he was going to bring this group of slaves out of Egypt, through the wilderness, and into the promised land. And so if God did not fulfill those promises, those other nations would have looked at that and said, maybe Yahweh's not that powerful. You know, maybe maybe Yahweh, or maybe he's not that faithful. You know, Yahweh doesn't finish things that he starts. And so God says, for the sake of my name, among the nations, I'm going to fulfill these promises to you. It reminds me of the the really strange story of Moses and God uh, in the wilderness. And some of you remember the story. This is uh, Exodus 32. Remember the story of the golden calf? Okay, remember? So God is is entering to a covenant. He's giving them the Ten Commandments. While that's going on with Moses on Mount Sinai, the people have built this calf, and they're already pursuing idolatry. And Moses goes down the mountain, and Moses and God have a very interesting conversation, and God basically says to Moses, Moses, let me Adam. okay? I'm gonna destroy these people, all right? And I will start with you. I'll give you a better group of people, and we'll, we'll start a new nation. We'll go from there. And, and Moses intervenes. He intercedes for the people, and he says, well, God, God. And you remember what his argument is? What will the Egyptians think, God. What would the nations think if you destroyed your people? And just, what would they think about your faithfulness and your goodness? And he, he basically talks God off the ledge, right? And God relents, okay? Now, I, there's some questions raised by that that I'm not going to try to answer today. But he's, he's appealing to Yahweh's reputation in the world, and his appeal works. Because God is motivated for the sake of his name. That for, for the sake of his reputation in the world, that his honor, his character, his, the glory that we saw last week, that that glory might be known among the nations. So in that first phrase, he wants Israel to know that I am the Lord. Here, he wants the whole world to know that he is the Lord. And so for the sake of his name, he is merciful to his people. All right. That's a lot of reading and and thinking about this. Um, Here's our phrases. Let me just kind of step back from this and bring this on home. We're looking at this vision of who God is in Ezekiel. And what we're seeing is this is what motivates God to do the things he does, certainly in Ezekiel and I I would argue elsewhere. He does the things he does so that people would know that he truly is God. He does it for the sake of his own glory and honor in the universe. Uh, I show you this image all the time, forgive me, um, but I think it's a helpful one of the solar system. And the metaphor is that God is the sun, right? He's the center of this solar system. that All of us are supposed to revolve around the sun. And usually my point in saying this is that, that this, is the, this is the nature of reality. And we need to live, rather than living self-centered lives, where everything is revolving around us, we need to live God-centered lives. We're, we're just one of these planets out there, but our life needs to revolve around God, not vice versa. Uh, the point I'm making this morning is that God himself lives a very God-centered life. <laughs> that at the very heart of God is this burning passion and desire for God. <laughs> if that makes sense that he is motivated out of a passion for his own glory his own honor in the world that that's what drives him ultimately to do the things he does and of course he's also he has other motivations he's motivated by his compassion for people his his heart for them but ultimately when you step back he does what he does for his own name's sake he is very god centered And I know there's something that initially sounds very strange about that, or I don't know to you, maybe even a little wild. I mean, if anybody else were this way, we would have serious problems, right? Like if I admitted to you, and this might actually be true, but if I actually admitted to you, I do what I do so that everyone would look at and see how great Dave is, right? You'd say, wow, you have some serious issues. You're a narcissist, right? But God is the one person in the world for whom that's perfectly acceptable for him to be that way. In fact, it's utterly fitting and, and necessary that he's like that. But, but we need to recognize that that's how he is. And if we don't, that some of the things he does will really confuse us or offend us. And we won't be able to make sense of them. And if we start with a very human-centered view of reality, if we just start with human beings and their, their worth and their value, we're going to look at some of the things that God does in Scripture, and we're like, I, I do not understand how a loving God can possibly do that. Uh, we're going to look at some of the things he does. I don't, I, I don't see how that works. Um, that you can, you can give life, but you can just take life too. That you can bring salvation, but, but you can bring judgment for your glory. You can raise up a guy like Moses, but you can also raise up a guy like Pharaoh. You can harden his heart to display your own glory. I don't understand that. If we start with a human-centered view, he's going to do all sorts of things that we just can't come to terms with. But if we start... With his view, there's something actually beautiful about this. And when you you kind of get past the initial narcissism that it it seems to imply, if you put yourself in the place of God, God is the most valuable thing in the universe, okay? Undoubtedly. What else could God possibly value as much as his own glory? And when God puts himself at the center of the universe, it's better for everybody, (laughs) If I put myself in the center of the universe, it doesn't work for anybody besides me, and it won't work for me for very long. But when God puts himself at the center of the universe, it's actually better for everybody. And so it's utterly necessary for him to live for his name's sake. And there's an even deeper beauty to it than this. And this is, this is the point I want you to hear this morning. And this, you can only say this, for those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, but if you put your faith in Jesus Christ... What it means is that God enters into a covenant with you, just as he entered into a covenant with Israel. And what that means is that his own honor is now bound up with the covenant he's made with you, which means he is going to be faithful to you. He will save you as his covenant promises, not just for your sake, but he's going to do it for the sake of his own name. Because he's made these promises, and for his own character's sake, for his own reputation in the world, he will fulfill the covenant to you. Let me show you how verse 20, uh, chapter 20 ends. This is the last verse I'll give you. This is how it ends after God bringing them out of exile. He says, You will know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake. And not according to your evil ways and your corrupt practices, O house of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. He says, I'm doing this, I'm not going to deal with you according to all the bad things you've done, but I'm going to do it according to my own desire to honor my name. And ultimately, that's the kind of God we want. (laughs) We do not want a God who's going to deal with us for our name's sake. Who's going to deal with us according to how obedient we are, how faithful we are, whether we always have the right character, whether we always make the right decisions. We don't want God's faithfulness to be dependent on that. We want it to be dependent simply on who he is, that he is a faithful God, that he is a powerful God, and that he will always fulfill his covenant to us regardless of where we are in the up and down cycle of our own obedience. Does that make sense? You know, I was thinking, it's kind of like in a marriage. You know, when you get married, I'll just speak as the guy. Ladies, that first year of marriage, you don't really want your husband um, saying, you know, I'm going to love you through this marriage uh, for the sake of the oath I made, you know? You kind of want to hear, like, I love you because you're beautiful and you're smart and you're interesting and you're creative. You're awesome, right? But 30, 40, 50 years down the road, you actually want that. You want the husband to say, yeah, I love you for the sake of the vow I made. Because now you got 50 years of each other's stuff. And that's the kind of guy you want. And, and, and guys, that's the kind of gal you want, Right? And that's the kind of God that we have who does the things he does, not for our sake, thank God, but for his own honor and glory and character. That's why he does the things he does. So I want to leave you with a prayer Uh, this week. Last week, we looked at this image of the glory of God, and I left you with that prayer of Moses that Mark mentioned. God, show me your glory. I think the prayer this week It's not the prayer of Moses, but it is the prayer of Jesus, which is the prayer he taught us to to pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? This is the fundamental cry of the Christian. Meaning, May God, would your name be treated as holy, as special, as beautiful? May may you be honored and and seen for who you are. May people truly know that you are the Lord. That is the cry of my heart. That's the prayer that Jesus invites us into when we come to God, that the, the fundamental desire would be God's own desire for his own name and glory in the world, that that would be ours. And when you think about Jesus, one of the key things that made him different from us is this was his prayer at every moment of his life. Every time he walked into a situation, his desire was this, God, I want you to be glorified in this moment. I want to do whatever I can do that will help people see how great you are. So he's looking out at the sea of human needs. He said, I want to heal these people so they can know your power and compassion. Or he goes into the temple and he sees God's house being profaned. And zeal for his father's name consumes him and he turns over the tables. He makes a whip. Or he's seen in Gethsemane thinking what he would love to do to protect his own life, but instead he says, "No, I know the cross is going to bring you glory and honor." So, Father, not my will, but Your will be done. And so, I want to invite you into that prayer this week, and just to say, what would it look like to step into each circumstance, to to go home this afternoon and say, "How can I live this day so that Your name would be hallowed?" How can I talk to my coworkers tomorrow so that Your name is honored? How can I hang out with my buddies on, on Friday or Saturday night so that? That your name is honored. In my heart, how can your name be honored? In, in my actions, in my words, in what I take in through my eyes. How can I live my life so that for your name's sake? So that I and so that others would truly know that you are the, the Lord. That's the prayer. So let's pray that prayer right now. Well, Lord. Ultimately, it is such a good and right thing that you do not treat us for our namesake, but for your namesake, based off of your character, your honor, your goodness, your faithfulness. And so may we be people this week who go into the different situations of our lives with that prayer. God, how can we be part of making you look great today? Fill us with your spirit that we would have that desire
1: and that we would know how to fulfill that desire. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.